Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us hear the word of God as we find it written in the Old Testament, reading in the book of Hosea, the seventh chapter, the eighth verse. Ephraim is a cake not turned. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning, dear friends in Christ Jesus. You who are here in God's house, you Christian friends who are worshiping with us by means of the radio, and you, the high school seniors of Emmanuel Church and Sunday School. This is a beautiful day, isn't it? And I hope that all of us thank God for the privilege that we have in this hour of worshiping him. As you have heard me say, today is the baccalaureate service for you, the high school graduates of our church and Sunday School. You are gathered together here this morning, and soon, young friends, you are going to go on your separate ways. Some of you are going into the military. Some of you have found employment. Others of you have matriculated in some college of your choice. And still others of you are contemplating marriage. Young friends, you have come to church this morning to hear a message from God's Word to you as graduating seniors from your various high schools. May I say the Word of God that I just read is very appropriate for this occasion. God is speaking and the prophet Hosea has recorded it and God says to Ephraim, he says, Ephraim is like a cake not turned. You may say, preacher, what's that all about? Well, may I say that Ephraim was the largest tribe of the northern kingdom of Israel. And very often God, in addressing the largest tribe, meant to address the entire ten tribes of Israel. So when God said Ephraim, he meant to say, you who are of the northern kingdom, you again who are of the ten tribes, he said, you are like a cake that is not turned. The picture is rather simple. If you go to the Holy Land, you still see today that the woman, when she bakes the cake of bread, she uses, as it were, a grill. She uses a large flat stone. And there she puts the dough and she has fire under it. Now if she should happen not to turn that cake of bread, the thing that happens is this. It gets done on one side and it's raw on the other. It is half-baked. And that's what God is saying. He's saying, listen, Ephraim, I don't want you to be half-baked followers of mine. I don't want you to be partially baked, that you are done on one side and raw on the other. I want you to be followers of mine who are fully dedicated to me. And this is the challenge, young friends, that God would bring you from his word this morning. God would say, I don't want you to be like Ephraim, like a cake that is unturned. It's done on one side and it's raw on the other and it's just half-baked. God would say, I want you to be fully-baked Christians. I want you to be followers of mine who are absolutely dedicated to Jesus Christ, fully so, completely so, 
all the way consecrated and committed to Jesus Christ. This is God's challenge to you, my high school senior friends. You may say this morning, well, what does it mean really to be a cake that is turned? What does it mean to be a fully baked Christian? What does it mean to give full commitment to Jesus Christ? I'd like to talk to you about that this morning in a very informal way. Then you may say, well, it means this, that my life will be worth living, that if I had it to do over again, that I do what you are asking, that I am going to see that my life is a fully baked Christian life, that it is not partially committed, it is thoroughly and absolutely committed and dedicated to Jesus Christ. Will I find joy? You've got a right to ask those things. And I'd like to talk to you about it. And I'd like to remind you that this is what it means in the first place when God says, don't be like the tribes of Ephraim, of the Gan, the northern kingdom, like a cake that is unturned. Don't be half-baked followers. God says, I want you to be fully dedicated. And that means in the first place that you are going to have this conviction that there is a God and that you're not just going to hope so. You know, there are a lot of half-baked Christians, friends, who aren't sure whether there's a God or not. They aren't positive. They hope so. Even though the Word of God says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork, and you and I look out today and we say, if there isn't a God, where did this universe come from? Where the beauty of the heavens of God? God certainly walked here. Here are the evidences in the firmament, in the skies, and on the earth, and yet some say, is there a God? There are too many Christians who are not thoroughly committed, who say, I only hope there is a God. Remember back four years ago when we were in catechism, we talked about the nature of God, and God revealed himself, and God says that he is a spirit. God doesn't have flesh and blood like you and I have. And therefore, that is why no man has seen God at any time. And we may say, well, I haven't seen God. How do I know that there is a God? What kind of a God would God be if God declared himself in his creation and God would not give you and me all the evidence that any sane human being needs as regards the fact that he exists? God did that which was the best. God says, since I am a spirit and assuming some form would not make myself known to you, I will reveal, I will uncover to you that I am a God that you will know that this must be truth from heaven, that I must be the only God. And God, you know, revealed that he's one God. And then that thing that you and I cannot understand about him that God says, I am one God, but I am three persons. I am a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Spirit. And remember in catechism I told you we look up to God because the Trinity is something we don't understand. How there can be one God, not three gods, and yet three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you recall that God revealed himself as an amazing God found in no other religion on the face of the earth. God says that I am the eternal God. From everlasting to everlasting thou art God. When you as a child asked Father, Mother, where did God come from? There was only one answer. God didn't come from any place. God is the eternal. God never had a beginning. God never had an ending. God is the Alpha and the Omega, as we are reminded on the altar each Sunday as we sit here in his church. And God has revealed that he's not only without a beginning, without an end, 
God says, I have all power in heaven and in earth. What a God. Never up against a stone wall. Never up against something that is utterly impossible for him. God says, I am all-knowing. God says, I understand and I know your needs even better than you can tell me. What a comfort that is. And God says, I'm an all-wise God. God says, I am an all-wise God. I never make any mistakes in your life. I do that which is best. To have a God who looks at your eternal welfare and mine and plans for all things for our good, we say to ourselves, this must be the true God. And God says that he fills heaven and earth. Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord. God says, I am everywhere present at the same time. And you and I stand and we gape and we look at him and we say, what a God. Your mind and mine can't understand, but this must be God. I look up to him and God revealed, if you want to know who I am, God says, I am a holy God. I don't sin. Sin is utterly reprehensible in my sight. Sin is something that I can't do. And you and I say, oh, holy God I can believe in and God says I'm a righteous God I'm a fair God I play no favorites every man is precious in my sight that's the kind of a God we want isn't it that one man doesn't have an inside track that we all stand and God says you are all precious and then God reveals something about himself whereby you and I can be absolutely certain that he exists God says I'm a God of love Remember, I have challenged you in catechism and I've challenged you frequently. You find the word love in any religion on the face of the earth. It isn't there. No man of himself, regardless of his of his acumen and of his intellectual attainments has ever dreamed that God could love him. God says, I am love and I love you over 400 times in Scripture. God reminds you and me that he loves us. This is the true God. Put your finger on the word love and you tell somebody to find that in any other religion on the face of the earth. God says, I want you fully baked Christians. This is the kind, fully dedicated, the kind that says, I know that there is a God because he loves me. And God has revealed that he's trustworthy. God says, you can rely on me. You can depend on my promises. You may say to me, well, preacher, what kind of a joy will that give me? I promise you this, the joy of knowing that there's plan in this world. There is a reason to be alive. There is purpose. There is mission. If there isn't a God, then for God's sake, why are we alive? Why did God ever equip you and me as we are? Why a universe? If when death comes, there's a nihilism, is it going to be a nothingness? Are you and I going to go into death and say we are simply tragic incidents and we are simply tragic objects of a blind fate and a blind chance? God says, listen, high school seniors, don't be like Ephraim, a half-baked follower. I want you to be a thoroughly baked. I want you to be a thoroughly dedicated Christian. And that means that you're going to say, there's a reason, there's plan. This universe has plan and purpose. God did something because God is behind it. That makes life worth living. It isn't a nihilism. Oh, yes, at the end of life to be able to know that there is a God. And it also means this, that God would remind you that when God says, I want you to be fully baked Christians, that you will keep your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Oh, today again, there are a lot of individuals that want to be saved, but they don't want Jesus Christ. 
Today again he's being questioned. Is he the divine son of God? Was he born of the Virgin Mary? Was he the Christ, the Savior? Did he on the cross bear the guilt and the punishment of the world's sin? Oh, today the confusion that we find with regard to Jesus Christ. Many say, no, I'd like to look at him as a great teacher. I would like to have him as a great example. But how about Savior? Even as regards the Word of God, the questions in the Lutheran Standard in the last week in the question box, talking about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And even the president of our church, the new president, is quoted, what does it mean? Was Christ born of the Virgin Mary? Was that an historical fact? Or does it just mean this, that God penetrated into this world through Jesus Christ? As we in the Apostles' Creed from the first century we have said, And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. Does the Word of God mean what it says? And may I say to you, young friend, it does. This was an historic fact because if he wasn't born of the virgin, then he was born a sinner. If he wasn't the Son of God, he wasn't the Savior. If the Word of God can't be relied on what it says, then ultimately we say, was there a person who ever lived by the name of Jesus Christ? Did he live? Or was he a figment of the imagination? May I with every breath left in me assure you of this, that a well-baked Christian is one that holds on to Jesus Christ. And you may say, well, what is that going to do? It means this, at the end of life's way, that you will be saved, that you will not be lost, that in Christ Jesus you will have an eternity awaiting you and he will not spew you from his mouth. You know, in the book of Revelation, there are some paramount words that Jesus spoke. When he, the living Christ, spoke to the seven churches of Asia Minor, remember to one of them, he says, Thou art neither hot nor cold. He said, I wish you were hot or cold. But because, he says, you aren't hot or cold, you are lukewarm. In other words, you're just half warm. I will spew you out of my mouth. Jesus Christ gets sick to his stomach when a man can no longer stand and accept him as deity. When a man can no longer stand and accept him as born of the virgin, as the Lord and the Savior, I challenge you as God challenges you, don't be like Ephraim, be a half-baked Christian. I want you to be a fully dedicated, committed Christian, one that is consecrated, that you're not ashamed of Jesus Christ, that at the end of life you may be welcomed by him into the eternal mansions. It means also this, young friends, if you're not going to be like Ephraim, a cake that is just half-turned, a half-baked Christian, but you're going to be a fully dedicated, it means that you're going to accept God's standard of right and wrong, not your own. Rather sad when you read back in the Old Testament, the days of the judges, you recall that when Joshua finally led the children of Israel across the Jordan and they settled the land, that they had no king. And there were judges at times, but we read in those days, if every man did what he thought was right in his own eyes. We talk about confusion today in our land as to what is right and what is wrong. Imagine what it was again in the days when the judges arose occasionally, but when every man did what he thought was right in his own eyes. May I assure you that a fully baked Christian is one that knows that he has accepted God's standard of right and wrong. What is right? What is wrong, we say to ourselves, and then we answer with confused answer. It isn't hard. That is right which pleases God. This is wrong which displeases God. God is the standard of right and wrong, young friends. 
When you and I say, because that's his standard and it's absolute, it is changeless, it shall go on forever, what is wrong will continue to be wrong, and what is right will always continue to be right. And then in your Christian lives, young friends, when again you are come face to face with a choice, and you say, if it's right, I can do it. If it's wrong, no. You may say, but a lot of times things that are wrong bring a lot of fun, a lot of joy. But don't forget this, you and I are moral beings. And if you can just simplify life and say, if it's right, I'll do it. If it's wrong, no. This is against the rule of God's right and wrong. It will mean that at the end of each day, at eventide, you'll be able to live with yourself. It will mean peace with God. It will not be a guilty conscience. As fast as individuals are going and seeking psychiatric help, and as fast as individuals are going into mental hospitals, we are told today that the majority of them, not all, the majority are there because they've got a guilt complex, because they have a sense of guilt. And may I assure you, young friends, if you want to have something to take all the joy out of life, if you want to make life sort of a hell on earth, run around with a guilty conscience. When you have violated God's raw law of right and wrong, God challenges you, young friends. You say you've come to church and you want to hear a message. God says, I don't want you to be like Ephraim. I don't want you to be a half-baked Christian. I want you to be a fully-baked Christian. I want you to be a fully consecrated, a fully dedicated one. But you can have peace at eventide, and that means something. And it also means this, young friends, that you're going to accept God's standard as regards bearing arms. How about this thing of war? Oh, this is a hot potato, isn't it? Oh, this is a hot one in the nation, isn't it? What about bearing arms? You may say to me, preacher, don't you know that God has great respect for human life? And may I say, you bet I do, son. You bet I know God has great respect for human life. I know that he respects human life perhaps more than you do. And perhaps more than I do. He respects human life so much that when he spoke at Mount Sinai, and when he said, Thou shalt not kill, what did he say? The New English Bible has the real heart of that one. That word is ratsak. And in the New English Bible it translates which it ought to be, Thou shalt not murder. I would have every man within the sound of my voice know this, that God has a tremendous respect for human life because God said, don't you murder, don't you in cold blood, go out and in hatred take another man's life because he also says, whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Oh yes, I know God has a tremendous respect for human life to the point that if you and I murder somebody and take his life, you and I sacrifice our right to live. That's what God thinks of the sanctity of life. God doesn't forbid all killing. In Romans 13, God says, The state bears the sword, not in vain. May I assure you then, you can be a Christian. And you can bear arms, young friends. People are saying, How can you be a child of God and bear arms and defend your nation? Oh, yes, you can. In the New Testament, there was the centurion at the cross who looked at Jesus, truly this was a righteous man, this was the Son of God. Remember the centurion, the Roman, who was the head of a hundred, that came to Jesus one day when his servant was ill, and Christ said, I'll come and heal him, and the man said, you don't have to come under my roof, just say the word. And Jesus commended the centurion, military men, 
play a great part in the New Testament. Looked up to there was Cornelius over in Caesarea on the Mediterranean when he sent for Peter and Peter came to his home and baptized him. May I say this? If you've got a conscience, however, that says that you couldn't under any circumstances defend your country and that the law of Christian love would not allow you to defend even to the death your own loved ones, you live in a nation that is big enough that it's marvelous enough that you conscientiously object you can be excluded from military but I just want to say this young men you can bear arms and you can be a child of God on the basis of the word of God yes God has a tremendous respect for human life you bet he does that's why he would have us to defend it when we say God says don't be like Ephraim don't be a cake that's not turned don't be done on one side and raw on the other don't be a half-baked Christian God says be a fully committed one a fully consecrated dedicated Christian it means also this that you're going to accept God's will young friends with regard to marriage some of you are planning marriage aren't you you're through high school going to establish a home you say what's God's will with regard to marriage it's not very flattering, is it, to read in the Marian Star last week that we, uh, we're way above the average of the state in divorces and above the national average in Marion County. We're breaking up homes, one out of every two and a half. Not very much to be proud of, is it? We say to ourselves, what about Mary? What's God's will? To understand marriage, young friends, we ought to go back to the Garden of Eden and remember that God made man, male and female. He created Adam and he created Eve. And this was in holiness. And then God married one man and one woman as husband and wife. The first marriage took place in Eden before sin ever came into the world. You and I don't understand marriage and we don't see the joy and the glory that God intended until we know this would have taken place had sin never entered into the world. When Adam and Eve sinned and they adulterated themselves in the sight of God, the first thing they noticed was that they were without clothing and they went and they took leaves and sold garments for themselves. They adulterated something good. You ask me, what is God's will? God's will is this that one man and one woman should be husband and wife till death us do part. There's a prelate in England, you know, that's getting quite a bit of notoriety. He wants to rewrite the vow. Again, the ancient vow, I take thee so forth to my wedded wife or husband and plight thee my troth, my faithfulness till death us do part. And he wants to reward it as long as I am able. Well, thank God his church says, oh no, oh no. You say, does it make any difference whom you're going to marry? Oh, yes, it does. Is he a Christian? Is she a Christian? Can you pray together? Do you know a common Christ in the weaknesses that are going to come in your home and they come into all of ours? When you have those two little bears in that home that in Christ you bear with one another's weaknesses and then you forbear threatening and nagging, you forgive one another. Oh, let me tell you this. It makes a big difference whether that mate of yours is going to be a Christian or not. That again, you may hold this thing together, that it may be sort of a taste of paradise, that your home may be just a little bit of heaven, and that you won't have kids if you break it up, who someday will say, Dad, why'd you do it? Mom, why'd you do it? I'm not casting any aspersion on anybody, any of you out of a broken home, you know as well as I do. It isn't much fun. It isn't much fun. Sometimes it's unbearable.
isn't it? The kids suffer. Could I say to you that if you're going to be fully baked Christians, when you pick that mate, Christ is going to be in that home. When you stand at that altar and you say, till death do us part, you're going to mean it. You're going to live with one another. And you're going to be a help with one another on your heavenward journey. This is joy. This is happiness. What does it mean, God, he said, O Ephraim? Ephraim, you're like a cake, not turned. You're, you're done on one side and you're raw on the other. God says, don't you be like that. I don't want you to be a half-baked Christian. I want you to be a fully-baked Christian. What does it mean? It means also this, that you're going to accept God's will as regards your role in life, your purpose, your mission. Isn't it a wonderful thing to say, why am I alive? Then for us to say, well, God gave me life. God has given me talents like he has given to no one else, and hasn't he? You're as different as day and night, isn't that right? Nobody in the world quite like you boys and girls. Nobody in the world quite like each one of us. God has made us so infinitely different. Why? Because he's got a plan. He's got a mission. Let your light, Jesus said. You may say, how am I going to find out, preacher, what my mission is in life? You may say, you talk about a mission and that, again, God's given me a prayer. How am I going to find You know, that's one of the thrilling things in life. May I say, that'll come through prayer. Remember when Saul of Tarsus was going up to Damascus and he was killing Christians? And as he went up to Damascus, he met the Lord on the way and he fell down from his beast of burden and out of the cloud he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who are you, Lord, that I am persecuting? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And then later on Saul says, What do you want me to do? Have you ever said to yourself, by yourself on your knees. Lord, what do you want me to do? You'll get an answer. Lord will say, what would you like to do? I am convinced of this, my young friends, that in the plan and purpose that God has equipped you and me for, it ought to be something that you and I like to do. He would say, what do you like to do? What would you like to do with your life for me? What would you like to do? And then when you say, God, I believe this is what you have endowed me for. I believe this is my role. I believe this is my task. I believe this is what small as it may be. Oh, the joy of enthusiastic living. I pity a man that gets up every morning and says, I'd rather take a beating than go to work. I'd rather be dead than have to go to my toil. But I'd like to see you arise in the morning. Thank God for the day. And say, God, this is my task. This is my role. And that you find joy in doing it. There was a man by the name of Robert Young. I don't suppose you'll remember him, but Bob Young was president of the New York Central Railroad. That's before it was defunct and went into receivership. He was worth several million dollars, and you and I would say, well, if Bob Young were president of the New York Central Railroad and was worth about seven and a half million dollars, he certainly was a happy man, but you know, he went to his office one morning, and he took a shotgun, and he blew his head off. You and I say, how in the world can any man worth seven and a half million take a shotgun and blow his head off? He was not happy, was he? You see, Jesus said something about 
life consists in more than the abundance of the things that we have. The real joy of living is going to be your role, your plan. I addressed a group of insurance men one night and alongside of me to my right sat the president of a large insurance company, wealthy, a fine gentleman, and I spoke. And when I finished, rather interesting, he leaned over to me and he said, I'd give anything in the world if I were you. I looked at him kind of funny. I said, you'd give anything in the world if you were me, a poor preacher, and you, the president of an insurance company? And he said, I certainly would. And I said, why? Because, he says, I'm not happy as the president of the insurance company. He says, as a boy, I remember the call to preach, and I didn't heed it. He says, God meant me, I know, for a minister. And I didn't heed it. And he says, oh, I've been successful. Yes, I've got everything, but... I don't have the joy and the satisfaction that would be mine if I could fulfill the plan and the mission of my life. Young friends, be a real fully baked Christian. Get on your knees someday and say, God, what do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? I promise you a life on tiptoe. I promise you a life of enthusiasm. You say, God, this is what you want me to do. This is what I am. And I'm doing the best that I can with what you've given me. This is joy. And then again, it's going to mean this. That you're going to accept God's will for your concern for others. Well, we heard a lot in the church today about concern for others. When Cain killed his brother Abel, remember when God went to Cain? God says, where is your brother? Remember Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Oh, that question is being asked today, isn't it? Rightly so. Am I my brother's keeper? And God says, yes, you are your brother's keeper. You and I are the hands of Christ. The only hands he's got are yours and mine. Where he's feet. He says, inasmuch as ye have done it unto least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And Christ says, here is my concern. All men I love equally. All men are precious. When you see a hungry man, he says, feed him. When you see a man that's thirsty, give him a glass of cold water. When you see a man that doesn't have any clothes, give him some of yours. When you see a stranger, Jesus says, take him in, give him lodging. When you see a man sick, go and visit him, comfort him. When you see a man in jail, go and minister to him. Jesus says, these are my brethren. Oh, again, the world is looking at the church and the world is criticizing it so insanely and so often so unjustly. What are you doing? Could I let you know this, young friends, if you're going to be fully baked Christians, you're going to take upon you the burden of humanity and you're going to say, in the role that I have, some way, somehow, I can do something that I shall be concerned for my fellow man and that I shall do what I can. I shall treat him with kindness. I will treat him with respect. I will treat him with deeds of mercy that some way through my witnessing to him in the name of Jesus that I will make it easier for him to be a Christian. Well, that's living at its best. God says Ephraim is like a cake not turned. Done on the one side and raws all get out on the other. Just half-baked. Don't be half-baked. Today it's rather strange when we talk about Christianity. You're, you're educated, aren't you? You've graduated from high school. 
I venture to say you go back to your grandparents. Not many of them were graduated from high school, were they? You're sophisticated, but isn't it a strange thing in this world that we somehow equate intelligence with atheism? If you're intelligent, you ought to be an atheist. Now, if you're ignorant, then it's all right to be a Christian. Rather strange, and you've been told, haven't you? As you get more intelligent, you get sophisticated, what you heard back in your church and what mom and dad taught you, you'll just outgrow. I'd like to tell you a little story. You know, when the adult class would have on Monday nights and some of you attended, uh, they're intensely interesting for me. I, I love that work because they're never any two alike. The people that come. This time, friends brought a, an instructor from Ohio State University. And I think you would say, well, if he instructs at Ohio State University down Columbus, I think you'd have to say, young friends, that he must have some intelligence of some kind, wouldn't you? He'd have to be a college graduate. He'd have to have a degree, wouldn't he? Well, friends brought him on Monday night, and they made that trip quite every Monday night, except when they couldn't make it. Rather strange, you got to know this young man. He told me this. He said, in my classes, he says, I taught atheism. This was what he was teaching. He was teaching there isn't any God, any intelligent person who wouldn't believe that there is a God. But friends introduced him to Jesus Christ. He didn't know him, see. They brought him up to Marion, and we were able, by the grace of God, to explain some of these things. Last Sunday was a rather busy Sunday, you know, and after we had our services and communion, took in members, and we had the reception for Bill in Minneapolis, and I went on home, and my doorbell rang, and he came in to see me. He said, now that I'm converted, now that I know Jesus Christ, he said, I'm writing a commentary on the book of Matthew. I'm writing an explanation. Would you read it when I have it done? I said, oh, yes. Oh, yes. This is not something you outgrow. There was Bob Ingersoll, you know. Bob Ingersoll was an intelligent man, but he was one of the atheists of a past generation. And Bob Ingersoll used to go up and down the length and breadth of this country, and he used to give a speech on atheism and telling people that if you're intelligent, you couldn't possibly believe in God. And this was his favorite gimmick. He would take his watch out, and he'd say, Now I'm going to give God five minutes to strike me dead on the spot for everything that I've said about him. And then he'd stand there and he'd wait. And then it is said that about four and a half minutes would elapse women would faint in the audience and they'd wonder whether God was going to strike him dead and after five minutes and nothing happened he put his watch back in and said see there is no God and one man said wait a minute Mr. Ingersoll he said do you mean to say one night he said this to him said do you mean to say that you can exhaust the patience of almighty God in five minutes well you see this thing of intelligence you can't be a Christian we equate intelligence with atheism oh let me tell you you can be intelligent and be a Christian Bob Ingersoll knew another atheist his name was Colonel Lou Wallace and he and Colonel Lou Wallace were on a train one day and they were talking about atheism and uh, Bob Ingersoll said to Colonel Lou Wallace said about time somebody's writing a book and somebody will write a book to degrade this Christ and Christianity to the point that anybody who except a fool would certainly absolutely not have anything to do with it and not believe it. And then Bob Ingersoll said to Colonel Wallace, said, Wallace, you're the guy to write the book. Wallace said, all right, I'll write the book. Wallace said, I'm going to write a book. He said that anybody with any intelligence will never believe in Christ. Well, Wallace started to write that book, my young friends, and he found out he didn't know enough about Christ to write about him. So the only thing he could do was turn to the New Testament and find out who is this Jesus. 
And Colonel Wallace finally finished that book. He gave a copy to Bob Ingersoll, and Bob Ingersoll read it. And Bob Ingersoll looked at him in amazement. He said, why, Colonel Wallace, he said, you were to castigate Christ. He said, you were simply to dethrone him and to ridicule him. You have exalted him. Colonel Lou Wallace, an intelligent man, said, yes, I have exalted him. I have found him to be the Son of God and the Savior. And that book, that novel, is Ben-Hur. When you get a chance, you read it sometime. It exalts Christ. All that we equate intelligence with atheism. If you will pardon a personal reference, you may say, what's this rig you got on here this morning? Well, first of all, you know, this is a doctor's robe. I do happen to have a college education and a seminary education and my alma mater, Cap University, and I say this in all humility, did give me a doctor's degree. And these chevrons that you see on the sleeve or bars, as some call them, the three bars, they indicate the doctorate. I don't say this to puff myself up, God forbid, but I would like to let you know that I have some degree of until This is a doctor's wood. The purple and white, the color of the alma mater or Cap University that bestowed it. I've been at it 40 years now. This is my 40th year, which will end in June. And may I say, I think I'm reasonably intelligent. And I want to say from the depth of my soul, I have never found any reason why a person can't be intelligent and believe in Jesus Christ and be wholly dedicated to him as the eternal Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, the Savior, the Redeemer of mankind. That I would want you to know. And I would remind you today, young friends, that you're on your way to heaven. Don't outgrow Jesus Christ. Let your song sort of be one that I know you know and one that you love. You ought to sing it often. Remember, you're on the way to heaven. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. We are climbing Jacob's ladder, soldiers of the cross. Every rung goes higher, higher. Every rung goes higher, higher. Every rung goes higher, higher, soldiers of the cross. Sinners, do you love my Jesus? Sinners, do you love my Jesus? Sinners, do you love my Jesus, soldiers of the cross? If you love him, why not serve him? If you love him, why not serve him? If you love him, why not serve him, soldiers of the cross? Rise, shine, give God glory. Rise, shine, give God glory. Rise, shine, give God glory. Soldiers of the cross, God says, don't be like Ephraim, a cake not turned, done on one side and raw on the other half day. God says, be a fully dedicated Christian. And I promise you that at the end of life, you will say it's been worth living. And if God gave it to you to live over again, you would do it again. God bless you. We all love you. Amen. The peace of God which passeth all human understanding, keeping unite your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting.